0: Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, how's it going? I hope your day is awesome. And even if it is awesome, it's about to get so much better. Um, I have to start with a story. I just did something totally epic and way outside my comfort zone. It was a 29 kilometer cross-country ski race in Hayward, Wisconsin like northern Wisconsin. The famous 50k version is called the American Berkabiner or the Berkey for short. Um, my race was the Cortelepet, <laughs> I, I never pronounce it. Uh, so we call it the Cordy. So anyway, I did the Cordy last weekend on Friday. And here's the deal. I picked up skate skiing a couple years ago. And I probably went out five to six times each year for the last couple years. And each time I pretty much thought I did not really like the sport, at least at first, every time I went out because it's cold and sometimes it's freezing wind and sometimes it's snowing and I don't always have the best gear and I don't know how to dress for that stuff. And it's definitely the opposite of sitting on a surfboard in beautiful Costa Rica. But as my days would go on, I would come to appreciate and maybe even like skate skiing. So when my friend asked me to do the Berkey, I said yes without thinking. But I immediately downsized to the 29K Cordy, although I must remind you that even though I call it like the shorter race, it's still 18 miles Okay, 18 miles on skate skis. So anyway, it forced me to get on my skis more this year because I wanted to prepare and I wanted to respect it a little bit and I didn't wanna be a complete rookie like falling on every hill. So so what happened is that I skied a lot more and literally after about 20 sessions this winter, it was on my last day of skiing before I left for Wisconsin that I actually had this thought while I was out there on a beautiful trail between Snow Mountain Ranch and Granby Ranch by myself in this just amazing area. And in my head, I thought, I might love this. So that happened, everyone. (laughs) I might love this. So race morning uh, came last Friday, and I was actually nervous. And I know that doesn't sound weird to a lot of people because this is a sporting event and most people get nervous, but you need to understand that I haven't felt nerves for a sporting event, maybe other than surfing, which I felt nervous for every single morning because it was new, but I haven't felt these kind of nerves for a race since I stopped racing as a pro in 2005. So this was a very uncomfortable feeling. (laughs) And I texted that to Tim. I just wrote him and I was like, I think I'm nervous. And he texted me back, Greatness starts at the edge of your comfort zone. Cool quote, huh? And good reminder. So all great things, whether we perform well or not, require us to dig beyond our usual levels of comfort and force us to live in states of discomfort. While we figure them out, so the short story is that I finished the Cordy, and I finished a little faster than I expected at two hours and thirty minutes. Um, it was cool. I started in the last wave, and even though I'm not a good technical skier, I have a a good level of fitness, so I passed people the entire race. I was joking. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I was like a hazard on the hills because I could do the hills really well, but. Most people weren't as good on the hills, so I was so frustrated on the hills because I was like, now I have to slow down when I actually have momentum. So I would like be trying to pass people on the hills. <laughs> it was pretty bad. I hope, uh, I hope people have forgotten me by now. But um, I even wondered when I finished, like I pass people all day, so I was like, oh, maybe I actually perform well in my age group. Well, the funny and humbling part is that I was in like the 65 or 70th percentile in my age group and of women in general and well behind many women and even women in the 70 plus age group, which is a far cry from my comfort sports like running, cycling and swimming. I mean, I definitely did not place or break any records, but it was an awesome place to be. So, my point is this sometimes we choose to do things that push us out of our comfort zones. Sometimes those things happen to us, and sometimes, you know, those that happen to us, we have to dig in and embrace the discomfort and use all of our tools to push through. And sometimes we choose those things that we want to push and try. Well, today's guest, Keegan Randall, fits into both categories. Keegan is a lifelong skier her family moved to Alaska when she was young so most of her formative years were spent there she is a talent pure and simple she is a natural athlete this is what she was meant to do and she gravitated to skiing and that is what she has become the best in the world at she's competed in five Olympic games I am not kidding Um, And while she raced at the top level in the world for over 15 years, it wasn't until 2018 when she and her teammate, Jesse Diggins, won gold in the team sprint, the first ever gold medals in cross-country skiing. Isn't that just amazing? Um, Many of you will remember that race. We talk about it in this episode, but... Keegan's athletic career alone is something I think we can all glean so much knowledge and inspiration from, but it's the next chapter of her life that started just three months after her gold medal that uh, really is testing her. So she was officially retired last year when she felt a lump in her breast and shortly after she was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer at 35 years old, healthiest person in the world. And this is the chapter she's still writing. Uh, Through it all, she's used exercise as a tool to help during treatments. And guess what? Here's our full circle. She jumped into her first endurance race last weekend. Yes, the Berkey. So she was also stepping outside her comfort zone and doing a long distance race for the first time uh, shortly after finishing her radiation and chemo. So, but wait, one sec, before we get her on, don't forget, I still have to give some kudos to my awesome sponsor. I need to share a quick reminder about our special podcast deal that uh, Skirt Sports gives to all of you. Skirt Sports, the company I founded many years ago to help women find happiness in their bodies. We just launched a killer swim collection, so be sure to check it out and use the discount code RUN20 for 20% off. Uh, You also get free returns on the new swim line if something doesn't fit. I Want to make sure you're comfortable getting the right size since trying swimsuits on in March is pretty much not awesome. Okay, now we're ready. It's time to get rolling. Let's bring Keegan on the show. Keegan, it is so cool to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Oh, thanks. It's a pleasure for having me. I, I love connecting with uh, other awesome females. So
0: Well, we have so much to talk about today. Like above and beyond. We're not going to be able to jam it all in because you've got a busy life and and I want to respect that. But I have to start us off with talking about this race coming up called the Berkey. (laughs) Okay, so I (laughs) laugh. I laugh because in my world, this is like the dumbest thing I've ever done, which is just like, tell a friend, sure, I'll come do this ski race with you because I'm like a fish out of water on skis. So, you know, I was a professional triathlete back in the day. I'm a land girl and I can swim, but you put me on skis and like people just expect someone who's a natural athlete to be able to just sort of jump up there and whoop it up. Right. But my primary goal is to stay upright, not to go fast. I don't, I don't know how to do that on skis. I just don't want to fall a lot and hurt myself right?
1: Yep. Well, hey, you're going to have 50k to figure it out. <laughs> well, the
0: funny thing is, um, I'm actually doing like, that would to me would be like the Ironman, the Berkey, which you're doing um, in yes. a whole different phase of life, but I'm doing the Cordy.
1: So okay, it's, well, 25k is still still legit. And
0: it's still like the dumbest thing I've ever done. So I wanna talk about this because for me, I'm kind of, I've been so busy that I haven't even really been paying much attention to like the updates and what I'm supposed to be doing when I get there and all of a sudden I realize I'm traveling to a ski race and I don't know this world. And I thought about that concept of like the things we do in our lives that are natural to us, right? And here you are in retirement coming off of you know, your, your breast cancer treatments and in a totally different stage of life, jumping into the Berkey, it's like a 50K ski race, something you could do just like breathing.
1: Yes and no. I mean, I for sure have the muscle memory and all the knowledge of what goes into a ski race and that will serve me well, but I have not been training at the same levels I was used to and I I had never raced 50k in the past. The women uh, on the World Cup generally race, race up to 30k. And so that's, you know, it's a little different preparation for 50k and and my preparation has not been uh on the normal track so i'm a little intimidated with the race coming up next week as well at the same time i'm also so excited for a challenge that scares me a little bit you know that i don't know you know i mean i'm pretty confident i can complete it but i don't know what in what state i will be when i cross that finish line
0: i mean it's so cool to hear you say that because like you know for a lot of people listening to this podcast Completing a race is just like the number one goal, but it's still it still dredges up all the same nerves and the same like pressures that you feel as a pro athlete, like towing the line for money. And the whole point of it is just that, like, I don't want to fail, right?
1: Yeah, because you you know that you're out there with yourself. You're you're not gonna you know if you if you let off if you let down um, if you don't do something as well as you want to that's going to be with you the whole way so when every race i go into i know the most important thing to me is putting out executing my plan and putting out the best effort i can because if i cross the finish line and i know that i've given that effort that i've been kind of brave that i haven't backed down when it got tough that i worked through challenges that gives me the best feeling when i cross the finish line And, and on the flip side when i have a race where i don't do all those things even if I've won the race, I still walk away with a less than ideal feeling because I know there's more I could have done.
0: Oh, I totally can relate to that. And that's what makes sport just such a brutal love, hate, masochistic pursuit for many of us, right? You can always do better. Or if you do your best, your result might not quite be what you hoped. And so it's that battle between yourself and then results.
1: Yeah. And that's why I am grateful to have had such a long career and to have had some of my biggest performances and results have come towards the end so that I had to spend a lot of time giving my best, falling short of expectation, whether that was my own expectation or others' expectations, but always having to look at my performance and go, okay, what did I do well? What can I do better? You know, constantly having an open mind of how I can improve, Dreaming about getting that perfect race in the future, which which kept me going, uh, never being too beat up about the really, you know, tough performances. and And then that every so often you hit that race where you just nail it. You know you gave your effort. You know, maybe you got the result you wanted. And it is just the most incredible feeling in the world. And that's what keeps me going forward. I mean – Every good performance in my life came after some tough period, whether it was a a slump or an injury or a time when I doubted myself, but I kept working through it and I went out there and I just said, you know what, what matters is me racing start to finish as fast as I can. That's all I'm going to focus on. And I ended up with major breakthroughs.
0: Oh my gosh. Well, this is like... First of all, I just need a little advice before we go into this amazing career because I want to talk about some of those slumps and some of those perfect races and what you do with that stuff. But okay, I I will be cheering you on from the sideline and probably come and like (laughs) jump all over you. You'll be like, Who is this woman? You won't even be able to tell because I'll be all covered up in ski gear. Um, super exciting to see, you know, hopefully see you at, at next weekend at the Berkey, but what advice do you have for me, someone new or anybody new who's listening, who's just starting and
1: doing a race that kind of freaks them out? I mean, I think just go into it with an open mind and a sense of curiosity and, you know, kind of, you know, have a plan about kind of how you think it's going to go, how you want to approach it, how you want to race. But as you go out there, just know that it's going to be a, a, a Coach told me once to think of it as a book. You're going to have different chapters out there. You're going to have good chapters and you're going to have bad chapters. But the most important thing is you keep going through each chapter one at a time until you get to the finish. And uh, that has served me well in some of those longer, more challenging races. Because you really just have to be your own best cheerleader out there and just go out. But realize that, hey, this is a new experience There are no expectations you're with a friend you're gonna be with a bunch of other people The energy is super high you're outdoors. It's beautiful And no matter what happens, it's gonna feel good when you cross that finish line And so I think just having the right mindset going in uh, will do a lot
0: I would say that coach was really prophetic like good chapters bad chapters just keep going Oh my gosh, this is definitely metaphor for your life right now. (laughs) That's for sure
1: (laughs) Yes, definitely.
0: So you've been a ski racer for the better part of your life, over 20 years, right?
1: Yeah, I've, I've focused on it full time since I was 16, 17 years old. So that's I've just hit now hit the 20-year mark um, as I retired. But I've been on skis since the day after my first birthday. Oh I grew up in a, in, in a family that loved skiing. My dad was more of the alpine side, so he got me on alpine skis right away. On my mom's side, I have an aunt and uncle that went to the Olympics in cross-country, and my mom skied collegiately, so there was the cross-country influence on that side. So I just grew up doing a lot of skiing, doing a lot of stuff outside, playing a lot of sports, and I really credit all of that for instilling in me the love of the lifestyle, which allowed me to do a competitive career for 20 years and stay in it, but then also just the fact that I'm a skier for, for my entire life. I just I love it.
0: Well, it's beyond that though. You're a natural athlete. Like anyone who gets on your website will immediately find the fact that you've run a five minute mile. Like, that's no <laughs> yeah, joke, never, sister.
1: <laughs> never quite under it. My, my aunt Betsy had the Alaska state high school record at 456. And so my goal was always to beat her record and I could never quite get under five. I got so close 0.2 of a second from getting there. But, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed running growing up. Um, I definitely have some natural inclinations as an athlete. I have a strong upper body. I have endurance. I have power. Um, so it's really made being in sports a lot of fun to really dabble with a lot of different things before I settled on my ultimate pursuit. Well, and
0: so Alaska, where, where in Alaska did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Anchorage, you know, for Alaska, it's the big city. Uh, it's about 300,000 people. And what I love most about it is that the mountains are right there. So you could be in the city and in 10 minutes you can be out on the trails and not see someone for hours. You have all these amazing recreational opportunities with trails and snow and um and then a population and a community there that loves being outside and loves being adventurous no matter what the weather um and it was just an amazing place to grow up and when i chose to focus on ski racing full-time it turned out to be a pretty great base for my training as well it's ski on the glaciers in the summer and winter is six months of the year so you get late snow in the spring and early snow in the fall and a lot of great training
0: You know, and you clearly had a strong family and great influences, but I do know that, you know, Alaska, there's a lot of issues in Alaska with substance abuse and homelessness and, you know, all kinds of other things. So how, you know, was the culture, were you protected from that or were you just sort of, you know, immersed in it?
1: I mean, living in Anchorage in the city, you know, you're exposed to everything. I went to one of the most diverse high schools in the nation. There were, I think, 91 different language dialects spoken in our school. Um, and we had the host of issues that come with such a diverse population, but I loved it. I loved the fact that I was growing up in such a diverse mix of people, getting to experience a lot of different ways of looking at life. Um, you know getting to experience a lot of different challenges that people work through. And, and ultimately, I think it gave me a great appreciation to then go out and travel around with, with my racing. And, um, yeah, I mean, Anchorage has its challenges for sure. and um, And those challenges aren't going away anytime soon because we are kind of a remote population. But at the same time, I love the spirit of the people. I love the fact that everybody um, is willing to take on these challenges. And, you know, of course we have the weather that tests us constantly. Um, we are kind of disconnected from the rest of the U S. Um, so that creates a little different atmosphere and attitude. Um, but I, I guess I've always had sports and I've always had a good community of people and good role models around me that have, you know, shown me how to take all, all of what Alaska has to offer and turn it into inspiration and confidence and go out and do something with it.
0: Well, and I'm trying to, you know uncover some of those early influences that brought you to some of your core values and helped you endure 20 years as a professional or maybe not quite 20 years but as a a long career as a professional cross country ski racer which is not the most lucrative um you know sport you can get into so like you know as a kid were you one of those kids who was friends with every group or, you know, were you kind of a loner? Or did you just do your own thing? Were you a happy kid? Like talk a little more about what you were like.
1: I definitely was not a loner. Um, I was very social kid, made friends easily, um, was quite a tomboy growing up. So I made friends with, uh, Everyone in the neighborhood, but had a group of uh, boys in my elementary class that I would, you know, cruise around with. We'd play football. We would build tree forts. Um, I had a couple cousins also that were boys that were my age that we were really close with. So did a lot of activities with them growing up. My dad was a lifeguard, so I spent quite a bit of time at the pool, um, both in the pool, learning to swim and do fun stuff with that. But also we kind of got to have the run of the place and um, there was a really cool field and woods around there, and I had my siblings with me, and so we just got to do a lot of, I think, exploring. Um, we have some pretty incredible women's-only events in Anchorage. We have a triathlon that's the oldest women's-only triathlon in the country. We have a run for women that gets five 6,000 women out every year. We have a bike for women, a ski for women, and growing up, I got to be a part of those. I got, you know, first going out as a spectator to watch my mom or my aunts do the events, and then later becoming a competitor myself. And I thought that was just normal for you know women to get together and do these races. And then when I started traveling around, I realized that was actually kind of unique. So I think that was really powerful for me growing up to be around so many athletic women that were just getting together, doing races, having fun, pushing themselves. My aunt, Betsy, who was the Olympic skier, I really looked up to her. I, I wore around all her Olympic clothing when I was young. I tried to beat her mile record. I wanted to be an Olympian like her, although I have to admit, I did not think cross-country skiing was very cool at first. I for sure thought my (laughs) Olympic ambitions were going to take me into a different sport. I think partly because no Americans had really been successful at the sport. And, you know, Alpine skiing looked a bit more sexy and soccer was fun with the team. But then as I got a little older, I started to realize that cross-country was, first of all, the combination of all the things I loved about the different sports I'd played. It had the speed of the downhill. It had the pure effort of the running, it had the team environment, uh, like soccer. But then when I realized that no American woman especially had won an Olympic medal, I kind of thought, well, shoot, that's a frontier that's just wide open. Just because no one, you know, no one's done it before, then you have the opportunity to try and be the first in all these other sports, you know, we'd already had medals. So for some reason, that, that belief deep down, and I think it's because I I grew up in a place like Alaska with with Olymp- Olympians, you know, in my community that I got to meet and I just started to be like, yeah, I it's, I can do this.
0: Wow. Well, let me, let me say, I went to Alaska for the first time two summers ago. Um, my husband was involved in this race they put on called the Alaska Man. Have you heard of it? Oh yeah, I know yeah. it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So he helped set up the course and helped with the race crew and whatnot and I I came along and brought my then five year old and we did this cool train ride past the glaciers from the town where it started, Seward, right? Yep. To the mm-hmm. town where it finished. Um oh uh Alyeska? Right? Yeah, Girdwood. Girdwood, it's yes. Um,
1: Alieska is the Alpine Resort there. Yes.
0: And um it was magical. It was like the wild west but not because you know you could find the things you needed but you just felt like you were out there and you know I can totally appreciate that your athletic spark originated there and what's funny to me is you talk about swimming in Alaska and I kind of laugh because it's like the last place you imagine you'd be nurturing a love for the pool even or your dad's a lifeguard you know so uh I think I can see why you know there's this sense of exploration and adventure that just seems like it's inside of you. It's almost like you said, I want to be great at something. So what's that going to be? And it's just sort of wide open, just like Alaska, you know, instead of saying, I want to go after this sport and you just let yourself fall into the right thing for you.
1: I did. And I I really credit my parents. They let me really explore a lot of different things. You know, they first signed me up for cross country when I was five or six. And after a season, I whined and complained and I didn't want to do it. It was hard. And so they said, great, well, you've given it a try. If you want to go do something else, you can. So I put it aside for a while and did some other things and then ended up coming back to it. And I think had had I been forced to continue doing something I wasn't into at the time, I never would have made it into this as a full-time career. So having the... The flexibility and the freedom to explore, I think, was important. At the same time, they taught me that once I committed to something, then I needed to see it through, and that was also an important lesson.
0: True, but you saw it through and through and through and through (laughs) and through to five Olympics.
1: (laughs) Let's talk a little bit more about your career. So uh,
0: you you hit your – guys, you started having great results in your teens on a national
1: level, right? I did. I got my first nationals podium at 17, 17. Um, and, and made my first world junior team that year. So I got to compete internationally for the first time. Then the next year when I was a senior in high school, um, I had to choose whether to represent the U S at the world championships or to ski in my high school state championship. And it sounds like a pretty easy decision, but at the time it was really tough for me because my best friend and also arch rival had won our freshman, sophomore and junior years. So I had not won a state title in skiing and it was my last chance but it was also a chance to race at the world championships. And so ultimately, I chose that and, uh, and it paid off.
0: <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. Think about any other high school senior who's faced with <laughs> that question. <laughs> but I get it because there's a lot of pride in like the state level and there's a team approach. So it's a little different feeling, you know, um, but it made you probably grow up a little bit to be like, all right, I'm going with the adults I'm now I'm a new I'm at a new level here and I'm glad you chose that option because it makes you grow
1: exactly yeah and I mean uh I think I could have I could have done well on many different paths but I think that was an important because for me to come and get experience in Europe was was really critical for me to just start to develop like what I needed to do to catch up to the rest of the world you know feeling like I belonged there that I could be competitive that experience was super crucial. And then it served me well the next year when one year after graduating from high school, I qualified for my first Olympic team. And I think, you know, kind of the season before and the racing definitely prepared me for making that team. And then when I got to the Olympics, I still felt like a kid in a candy store. <laughs> I mean, following all my heroes around on the trails and like, whoa, it was just like so wide, wide eyed. But at the same time, I also had one big international competition under my belt, and so it's just kind of like, okay, I'm at the Olympics. I'm here. I'm here to make a step forward.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. So, how did like your uh, education? You know, did you? How did college play into the mix?
1: Well, that was perhaps maybe the hardest decision to make um, when I was graduating from high school because it was very tempting to. I had some really great offers at at big NCAA schools to both ski and run possibly and go to school Um, and I almost did that I actually deferred for a year at Denver University and University of Utah um, thinking that I would take a year try to make the Olympics and then pick up school after that but then in the meantime um, I got introduced to this small private university in Anchorage called Alaska Pacific University and it was actually at the time my club team was affiliated with them and they said well you're here in Anchorage, why don't you take some classes and you can always transfer them later. So I thought, oh, that's a great idea. I always loved school and wanted to balance skiing with that. So started taking classes there and realized that I I really like the school. I like the small class sizes. I like this active learning concept, and I like the fact that I could choose when to take classes and I could make it complement my skiing. Whereas if I went into the NCAA, it was going to be a lot stricter. I was going to have to take a minimum number of credits. I was going to have to take classes during my competition season when I know I was would try to be in Europe for a lot. So at that point. Uh, I kind of made a crucial decision and I said, you know what, you know, the the college thing is cool, but I really feel like my goals are international. And uh, the fact that I can, I can do school and I can complement it with my training, which now it's evident is going to take, you know, maybe up to 10 years before I really reach my potential. Um, I think I'm going to choose this different route. And I think maybe that will be the path to success. And so I started taking classes and training and, um, I would say a couple years in, uh, my my progress had slowed a bit, and it definitely made me really have to dig deep within myself to be patient and remember that I was kind of on this longer term plan. When my friends were graduating with degrees and you know racing NCAA, and it looked really fun, uh, but it I just knew if I stayed in it, it would pay off. And then, really, literally a year or two after that, it just it really started to take off.
0: Okay, so with With then your college path, did you end up graduating?
1: (laughs) I never quite made it to the finish line of that one yet. Um, I've taken enough credits to be uh, a senior in the undergraduate business department. Um, The cool part is is I've, I've actually blended a lot of my business studies with my business as an athlete learning how to market myself and you know run the finances and all that kind of stuff um did some internships but as i got started competing more and more in europe and the training was taking up more and more of my time uh i started to back off from the classes a little bit
0: you know and it, this is really kind of cool because um my husband his name's tim he won the hawaii ironman a couple times so he's a world champion in the sport of triathlon and He left college with a few credits left and carried a lot of guilt with himself for many, many years. Partly because, you know, people would ask, like, what are you going to do next? Like, that was the constant question for a professional athlete who's not in, like, a big sport. I'm sure you got that your whole career as well. Well, what are you going to do after you're done racing? You know, but um, he finally went back and got his his uh, bachelor's degree about four years ago, because you can do it online now, you can do anything. So like, I hear you, I know those decisions are hard to make, like when to kind of walk away to pursue other cool things. But like, imagine if you didn't go pursue whatever cool sports opportunity was... Was there for you at that time? You probably wouldn't have reached your potential because you had your nose in the books. So I love your approach too because you're just so positive about the things that you you've taken with you. It's not like you have guilt or regrets, or do you?
1: I mean, there's a small part of me that would have loved to finish the degree just because it's it's a real clear like you know accomplishment kind of thing. My younger sister. Loves the fact that she's graduated from college before I have. You know, it's the one thing she holds over me. um And and my grandfather was actually a big hurdle for me because after I made my first Olympic team in 2002, he kind of said, "All right, you've made your Olympic team. Now it's time to go and get her. You know, get a real degree and get get a real job." And I, and that's when I had to uh, discuss with him, like, "No, you know, I think I can really be successful at this. I think I can make a living at it." I think it's going to be worthwhile. It's just going to take some time. And it took me a few years, just, you know, him constantly hounding me. And then when I ended up winning my first world championship medal, which was in 2009. So eight years after I graduated from high school, I think he finally started to get that, oh man, she's right. Like this is turning into something, but it was, it was kind of a battle there for a while.
0: (laughs) It is, it is. And you really have to have a deep belief in yourself. I mean, how did you support, support yourself in those early years? And let me just stop by saying I made the, I I assumed that your sport is not a super like high earning sport. Like you probably make money through prize money and sponsors, and then a few other things you can leverage, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you could make money right out of the gate enough so you don't have to work another job
1: um it's it's a creative problem <laughs> i would say you know we're we're i think we're very much like triathlon or marathon running or a lot of those sports that are they're olympic sports you know you maybe don't hear about them much outside of the olympics and it is it can be really challenging to make a living when i ma- got my first national title so this is right before the 2002 olympics the prize money was twelve hundred dollars so not not a ton but when to you're win. 19 years to win yeah okay. so so when you're 19 years old, you know, that's it's a nice amount. And I kind of had to decide if I took the money, then I would lose my chance to race in NCAA. And I, I really had to think about it. And at that point, I realized, like, no, I think I am committed to the long term, to my international goals here. And if I'm going to make those goals, then I have to support myself. So I decided to take the money. And from there, really just kind of started to look for opportunities to engage community partners, you know, sponsors, and uh, I, growing up in Anchorage in Alaska, was definitely a unique spot in that the winter Olympians did have uh, a bit of celebrity and a bit more recognition, and so I was able to go, and my first sponsor was the Public Safety Employees Association, which was the the union (laughs) for, like, the state troopers and the policemen and firefighters, you know, the connection that my dad knew through the pool, So I put their logo on my jacket, you know, and I raced. They gave me a couple thousand bucks, I think. And so at that point, I was also working a part-time job at a running store. And I did that for between my first and second Olympics. And then going into my second Olympics, I realized that to train in the morning, a couple hours, run to my running store job, work for four hours on my feet, and then go try to train again, I just wasn't getting, getting the quality out of my training that I needed to keep pace with the rest of the world. So that's when I decided to just make a go on the savings I had collected so far, commit to training full-time, and see what I could do in a year. And in that year, that was the big breakthrough. That's when I got my first top 10 at the Olympics, my first uh, top five on the World Cup, and that qualified me to then start racing full-time on the national team in Europe. So it, it was a gamble, but it paid off. And then from there, I just started to get more proactive about sponsorship. So Uh, It was a lot of community stuff. There was a little bit in the equipment side. And then it was still a few years after that before I really started to win prize money on the World Cup. Once you get to be one of the consistent podium contenders in the World Cup, then there is some decent money to be made. Because we have, I think, 39 World Cup races a year. You know, they pay, uh, I think the winner wins 15,000 Swiss francs, you know, down from there. So in those years where I was getting a lot of podiums, I was actually making a decent living. But that was a solid. 10 years into my career.
0: So let's talk about that. 10 years. So I've heard you in many other podcasts mention this amount of time and patience. And yet at the same time, you also talk a lot about like play, you know, and, and fun and lifestyle. So what keeps you going for 10 years? You know, when you're, first of all, you never know what your potential is going to be. Like, what is your prime? Where is your peak? That's the other hard thing about sports. So you can just keep going forever, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what
1: kept you going? Why do you love it so much? Well, you know, and there wasn't exactly a road to follow. You know, no American, at least in the modern era, had had been successful at the international level. So there was nothing to say exactly how to do it or if it was possible. But after my first Olympics, I sat down with my coaches and we, we drew out this, this plan and we kind of looked at all the different steps we felt it was going to take to work our way up to being a medal contender at the Olympics. And as we planned it out, it was going to take 10 years because I was going to need to get like success at World Championships, success at World Cup, success at under 23, success at World Juniors, and on down. And so we made this 10-year plan, which I'll admit was daunting at 19 years old to, to think about things taking that long. Of course, in my mind, I knew I was going to do it much faster. Um, but I had all these intermediate things to be focused on. So I think what kept me going, especially over that 10 years, was just like, okay, well, I'm chasing after a world junior result. Okay, check, got that. You know, chasing after the next one, U23. Okay, well, maybe didn't quite get that, but I got close. You know, and just like I had these things, and I knew that every year that I was training was a year that was going to build up to, to be something greater. So every year, my confidence was growing a bit. My training base was growing a bit. I was feeling stronger. And then the lifestyle piece was I was really enjoying it. I got to be part of a team, uh, both in Alaska and then the greater U.S. ski team. I got to work with some coaches that I, you know, really worked well with and believed in. Um, I I love the fact that I got to be traveling in Europe half the year, racing. And so it just, the lifestyle, I think, enjoying the day-to-day kept me going and having the goals to focus on. And I really believe that having those little goals, which gave me a feeling of success and progress, were so critical and sometimes I had to get a little creative. Like I kept this Excel spreadsheet of all my results. And sometimes the result wouldn't look that impressive on the result sheet, whether it was the, the place or, or the time. But if I kind of compared it with where I had been, then I could see that I was making progress. And so um, that kind of kept me going forward. And then the cool part about an endurance sport is it's just like, I once I literally put in that 10 years, And it really did take me to about 10 years. I mean, I had some high points in there. But when I kind of hit that 10-year mark, it was amazing how things really just started to click. And I started to be a consistent competitor for World Cup podiums and then World Championship medals and Olympic medals.
0: Wow. 10-year plan. (laughs) (laughs) It is daunting just to hear that. But there is so much power in this goal-setting process. Um, wow. I'm just in awe. That is so cool. You know, the other thing that you didn't mention yet that I know happened is that sport brought you a really big relationship in your life. Maybe you could talk about how and when you met your husband and how, how meeting Jeff like fell into this 10 year plan.
1: That, that's a great point, And that's a huge, important piece of the lifestyle of it. Um, when I was finishing up the season after my second Olympics, uh, I stopped in northern Maine to do one more ski race before heading back to Alaska. And I met this cute guy one night at the bowling alley. They had a social event after the race, and he had a Brooks t-shirt on. And I was working at the running store at the t- or you know, still kind of working at the running store at the time. So I just went over and I made some comment about running shoe technology, and he knew what I was talking about because he was working for the Brooks distributor in Canada. And so we started talking about running shoes and kind of laughing at how dorky we were talking about running shoes. And then I found out that he had run track. And so we kind of talked track a little bit and just really enjoyed chatting with him. So at the end of the night, I gave him my Keegan autograph card and said, hey, I really enjoyed talking with you. Here's my email. (laughs) And then the next day I get an email back and I'm like, oh, fun, sweet. So we start emailing and then I convinced him to buy a computer with a webcam so we could start talking on Skype. And then a few months later, um, he had invited me to a training camp in Bend, Oregon that was going to be on snow, but I couldn't make the timing work. So I said, well, Hey, why don't you come to Alaska for the summer and you can ski on the glacier? And he said, Oh, he'd love to, but, um, you know, it was kind of expensive. And so I offered him some airline miles and he said, okay, I I could probably do that. I went to book the ticket and they only had first class seats available for double the miles. And I kind of had this pause like, oh man, I like hardly know this guy, but I think it'd be kind of fun to bring him up. So just went ahead and splurged on the miles and brought him up. And we had a great 10 days where I trained him into the ground. Um, he had never done a run over three hours before. And we did this five hour point to point race or um, run in the mountains. And um, he kept up with me. So after that 10 days, we decided, you know, hey, this is pretty fun and We continued to get to know each other a lot over that first year over Skype because he was back in uh, just north of Toronto and I was in Alaska. But about a year after we met, I convinced him to move to Alaska um, because he was serious about trying to make the Olympics. And I knew that how important it was for me to have a team and to have a coach and good training grounds. And so I convinced him to move up and um, he got pretty darn close. Didn't quite make the Olympic team in 2010, but pretty close. Uh, but it was so cool for us to, we were just living a total parallel lifestyle. Um, we just were training together. We were able to go to some competitions together. And because he was an athlete, he could understand the unique demands of my schedule and my mood and <laughs> all of the things that come along with being an athlete that would be hard, I think, for a regular person to understand. And as our relationship has carried along, you know, he retired after the 2010 season. And for eight, the last eight years of my career, he helped support me and he was patient um, because he knew I was going for an individual medal in 2014 and then wanted to do one more Olympics through 2018. And because he was an athlete, it it really helped a lot.
0: Wow. Okay. So when your potential future marriage boils down to, are you worth the double miles? (laughs)
1: Yeah, exactly. Love it. I, I knew it would make a good story either way. And I just, I was excited to see him. So it was worth it.
0: And he was like, holy cow, she's like a high roller. She must, <laughs> she's putting me in exactly. first class. Um, it just really sounds perfect. You know, I mean, you met through sport, you met through um, a pursuit you both loved, you put him to the test. How cool is that? And then, you know, I'm also interested in this dynamic of like you being the primary athlete in the family, even though he was successful to a point, like at some point he realized you needed the support and the focus, right?
1: Yeah. And that's where, I mean, he has just been such an incredible partner for me because you know, his ski career did not end on the positive note that he wanted to. And I think he would have happily walked away from skiing for a while, taking a little bit of a break from it. But because of me, we were still immersed deeply in it. And, um, you know, we wanted to start a family. But when I was really pursuing my goal of the 2014 Olympics, you know, I really didn't have time to slow down and do that. And so he (laughs) was kind of patient on that front. And, you know... There's also the whole piece of once you've been an athlete for your whole life and then you start to transition and figure out what you do afterwards, he was going through that process while I was going after some of the most important goals in my career and so I was singularly focused on kind of what I was doing and meanwhile he's going through this transition and trying to figure everything out and he's not only going through that, but then he's supporting me at the same time. So, Ooh. you know, now that I'm the athlete going through the transition, I'm appreciating so much more, yeah. probably how difficult that was for him and how, how much he committed to supporting me, um, and taking the time that he could have been putting into himself. And so it just makes me appreciate him so much more.
0: You know, I, I hear you, I've, I've experienced a lot of similar things, um, I don't know how open or if this ever even happened with you guys, but I found that those transitions are really tough on marriage and, uh, definitely create disconnections. You know, you have to work really hard to stay connected, not resent, not read into things, all that stuff.
1: It is. And I think, you know, having never been had since we hadn't been through it before, you know, it was a learning process for us. And, um, I definitely didn't realize a lot of what was going on right away, so I had to kind of clue into that a little bit later. Um, and so mm. it was definitely a challenge for us, but we we worked through it and I think it strengthened our relationship and now now that I'm in that transition period, we have his experience to work off of and kind of uh, you know, we know kind of more what how to how we can work together and, and be supportive and so we've really grown a lot from that.
0: Well, and I just think life experience puts a lot of things in perspective. You know, sometimes I'm like, oh, that first 10 years of our marriage, that was a warm up, you know, like, but during those first 10 years, like every, every situation is really important and tough, you know, and then you look back and you're like, oh, that wasn't that big a deal. (laughs) It's like racing. Every race seems to be the most important race of your career. And of course, every athlete wants to do what you did, like hit the biggest ringer of your life and hang it up but that's not the reality for 99% of athletes.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you, I mean, I'm grateful that, you know, you don't know it until you go through it. Because I think, you know, if you knew how hard it was going to be, you know, how much it took to get to the the end of your career, whether you hit your goals or not, I think it would have been discouraging early on. I think you got to have that kind of be a little bit naive and just be optimistic and be excited about every milestone you're hitting early on. Um, But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's challenging. And, and again, that's where I kind of really, after my 2014 Olympics, where I went in as the gold medal favorite and was so confident I could win a medal and do that. And then I ended up getting knocked out in the quarterfinals. um, That really just taught me a lot about how important the, the process and the effort are. And And really, that it, you know no matter what you do, as long as you give that, then you get to walk away satisfied. And I think you know, in the end, maybe that f- freed me a little bit to perform well in my fifth Olympics. But I also knew that if I didn't get that medal in my fifth Olympics, that I'd still be able to finish my career and and be satisfied with kind of the effort I gave and the, pr- the process I did.
0: Well, let's talk about that fifth Olympics because you're you and Jesse. I mean, seriously, uh, it is not the sexiest sport, you know? I mean, probably doesn't have the viewership of, I'm assuming, alpine skiing and some of the other sports and figure skating and all that for winter. But, man, there are a few moments in Olympic history that you just want to, like, replay, put in a file, and pull out any (laughs) time you need a boost. I mean, your guy's finish was uh, unprecedented. I mean, tell, talk a little bit about that race. Like, this is it. This is the culmination of the 10-plus-year plan, 16 or 17 years by now. But, like, it's happening. Like, how were you feeling during that race? Did you realize what was happening?
1: Well, I have to kind of back back up a little bit and, you know, t- and say that the, the four years leading into that, I mean, first of all, I was really unsure whether or not to continue for one more Olympics. But it was the team – that, that we had created up to that point that really kept me involved because I knew we would have some opportunities to go for medals in the team events and, and these girls had become like sisters to me and I wanted to continue pushing our team forward. So for four years, our team focused on one event and that was the team sprint because we knew we had, we had had good history in it. We also knew that there were eight of us on the team and probably six of us would be vying for those two spots. Um, and so we talked a lot about that and we talked about how challenging it was going to be that only two of us would be on that team. And so, you know, we knew we all wanted to be on it. We were all giving our best to try to be on that team. And so we really talked a lot about how no matter who those two people were, whatever that result was, we could all feel a part of it. And so going into the Olympics, I mean, I wanted a spot on that team so badly. That's what I trained totally for, um, about, Six weeks before the Olympics, I got a stress fracture in my foot. And for about a month, I had to back off from racing and I was I was in the pool aqua jogging. I was on the bike. I was double polling, but I wasn't doing all my training that I had planned on doing to peak at the Olympics. And I was freaking out because I thought, man, my teammates are all skiing so well. How am I going to make that team? And so as we came into the Olympics, I wasn't even sure which races I would get, to, if any, would get to ski. I got to do the first race. And it went terribly. I I totally cramped up at uh, 10, or bonked at 2K. I cramped up at 10K. And I thought, oh, man, that's it. That was my one Olympic race. And thankfully, they gave me a shot in the 10K a couple days later. That race went a little bit better. So then that gave me an opportunity to race the four-person relay. And I had a pretty good race in that. But it was, still came down to, you know, we were about 36 hours from the team sprint. And they hadn't told us who it was going to be yet. So I'm sitting in, my, in, the, in the room with a couple of my teammates and the coach walks in and you can just tell from the look on his face that he's going to tell us who that team sprint is. And we knew that it was, one of the spots was going to be Jessie because she had been skiing fantastic. So it was down to just one spot now. And I'm sitting next to my teammate, Sadie, and the coach tells us who it's going to be. And we know for one of us, it's going to just be our, abs- you know, absolutely make our day be so exciting. And for the other person, it's just going to be crushing. So he comes in and he tells us that they've chosen me and that it was a hard decision. And Sadie turns to me and she says, well, you know, I wanted to be on that team, you know, but I believe in you as much as I believe in me. And what can I do to help? And that was one of the most powerful moments maybe in my career to know that a teammate who could have just been so disappointed and. You know, turned around and told me that she was there for me. And so the day leading into the race, our whole team worked together. We went and did a workout on the course to mess with the heads of the, our competitors so they wouldn't know which two of us were racing. We did our, a run together in the morning. Jesse and I spent the day together. Um, we had teamed up five years earlier in the world championships, so we tried to recreate whatever we did that day. So we watched our favorite glee clips, and we put on our relay socks. Did and you see so when-
0: glee? Glee clips? Glee.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the last song we listened to before heading out the door was Don't Stop Believing. And I think that was uh, just a cool sign. Um, the, the whole day, Jesse and I never talked about the medals. We just talked about, you know, skiing smart, skiing strong, um, just going out there and giving our best because we knew that we were representing our entire team. And so that night when we walked out under the lights... Um, I knew I had a big job to do because I was skiing the first leg against Marit Björgen, who's arguably the best skier of all time, you know, 15 Olympic medals. Uh, for She's racing for Norway. I'm up against Charlotte Kalla from Sweden, who's already won, I think, two or three medals that week at the Olympic Games, is in the form of her life. And both of those girls are better distance skiers than me. So as the race goes on, they should theoretically get stronger and stronger. And I knew my job was just going to be to keep us in there with those two. So the gun goes off. We race the first lap, you know, a ski smart, ski right with them, tag off to Jessie. She skis a great first lap, really nice and smart, strong, tags off to me. And I'm not, I'm thinking, oh, man, okay, this is where they're really going to ramp it up. And for sure, the pace picked up. Um, but as I as I followed along, I was able to match their pace step for step. And so by the end of that first lap, you know, we're still in metal contention or sorry, second lap. And I tag off to Jesse. And then on her second lap, she decides that there's just too many teams together. And so she puts in a huge burst of speed and breaks it down to to three teams. And by the time she tags off to me, we're in the lead. So we head off onto the the trail. And I strategically let the other two, you know, kind of come around me a little bit to block the wind. Um, But then I start to feel a little bit of a gap form. And I'm uh I've, i'm knowing like i can't let i can't let any snow build up between us so i really like had to dig in and it was coming in the course's main climb and thankfully the climb was always a strength for me and i was able to kind of reaccelerate and get right back on those two and so uh you know when i finished my last lap i tagged off to jesse and i knew it was up to her and i had total confidence that she would be strong um then as they came down the hill into the stadium you know, there was a, a a crazy moment where Sweden and Norway kind of bobbled and then Jessie went wide and then she almost went off the course and I wasn't sure I even wanted to watch anymore. And then <laughs> so I saw crazy. them co- come off the final turn and I'm standing in the finish and I'm right next to the, the Swedish girl, Charlotte, Charlotte, and we're kind of peering around some people and from our perspective we can't tell who's in the lead i mean they are just look like they're dead even so they're sprinting and she and i are having our own shouting match to see who can will their teammate to the finish quicker and so when they lunge for the finish line i thought for sure it was a photo finish so i look up at the scoreboard and when i saw number 1 united states 0.19 i just i couldn't believe it i couldn't believe that we not only did we just get a medal but we got the gold medal. I mean, Jessie had such a fantastic, she took on the the Olympic sprint champion and found that extra gear and got the gold medal. And so I ran out there and I tackled her and somehow she still had enough breath to say, did we just win the Olympics? (laughs) And, uh, And so we had an amazing, we had an amazing moment, but the coolest part was that our entire team was right there on the boards. They had been, out there cheering screaming their heads off the entire night and so we got up and we ran over there and we got to share that moment with them you know and all that stuff we talked about about you know the accomplishment belonging to the entire team that was the best part of sharing it with everybody right there you know with the coaches with the wax staff because what people on tv don't see is the team effort it takes to put us in a position to perform like that. Like the guys that were working on our skis in the two minutes they had between rounds as the person was out on the course. I mean, our team outwaxed every other nation that night and the coaches and just, and my parents were there and my husband was right there in the finish area because he was working. Um, so he could be right there. And oh my gosh, that just, that was the most incredible moment. I, I, I had dreamed about winning the gold medal, but never, could comprehend how it was going to actually feel it's like a
0: fairy tale man i mean i know you had ups and downs like it's clear and you know you're going through another journey now but it's like everything was destined for this moment and uh and you guys nailed it and you're right in the end it wasn't just about you and that makes this even more like beautiful and special that you can see that and you can appreciate that.
1: Yeah, I mean, in a, in a way, I'm actually grateful for the experience I had in 2014, because that was my individual chance at a medal. And I think to to go for a medal and, and to fall short and have to process that and then to go four more years and then have the that first women's Olympic medal, that first team gold medal to happen in a team event when, you know, we've been so much about the team to be able to share that experience with a teammate um, was more incredible than it would have ever been for me to have done it individually. And for it to happen at the end, you know, my 18th Olympic performance, you know, right there, uh, it it was just amazing. And I just was so, I think, satisfied because we finally got to prove that we could be the best cross-country skiers on the biggest stage You know, when everyone is watching, we'd had success, at the world championships, we'd had success at the world cup, but to do it, the the Olympics, to be able to get the, the spotlight just for a moment on the sport that we love, the sport that I think is so, you know, not so well understood, but can be so powerful just because it is something that does show how being healthy, hard work matters. You know, it's something anyone can pick up and do. Mm -hmm. Um, It, I just, I was so happy to finally get that chance to showcase our sport.
0: You just seem like you live in gratitude. <laughs> it's so cool. You know, and let me add another layer onto this. Something we've only mentioned briefly because and but it's a big topic, you know, when you're racing for a living and you use your body for a living and you're a woman and you enter childbearing years and you only have certain amounts of time, like it's a big decision whether or not you want to become a mom and how to do that and continue being an athlete full-time and you did it and you made that decision and you had this baby who is now a child and like a little person and I can tell from what I see of you on social media that he is like the light of your life and so I know that being an athlete at the level you were takes singular focus, but once you become a mom, your life transforms. Like there's no way around it. And so you don't have the same singular focus you just can't. But yet look at you. You look what you did. Like it's this whole like you can have it all thing. That's how I feel when I'm when I think about you. So um maybe you can just share a little bit about how becoming a mom transformed your life, and how that fit in and and changed your experience in a different way.
1: Oh well, that's I think that's the best part of my story. Um, after that two thousand and fourteen Olympics, you know, I did have a big decision to make because I had a pretty successful career up to that point, and you know, did I want to commit four more years to another Olympics when? You know, I wouldn't have a shot really probably at an individual medal, but there would be shot at the, at the team medal. And my husband had been very patient for four years, but we did really want to start a family. And I was really excited to be a parent. So we kind of got strategic and figured out that, you know, every um, every Olympic cycle, there's this kind of middle year where there's no major championship. And no matter how I ran the numbers, there was no way I was going to get away with not missing some racing. But if I did it on that year with no championship – then I wouldn't miss a really big highlight and I would still give me two years to build back to the Olympics. So we targeted that year and, you know, a pregnancy is never a, a guaranteed thing, but we were able to get pregnant and um, and, I, and I missed that winter of racing, but I was able to train quite a bit through it and I just really approached it with a, with a curiosity and I said, you know what, I, I want to become a parent and I want to keep ski racing. I don't know how it's going to work, but, you know, I'm going to give it a try And, you know, ultimately, if, you know, because of health reasons, I have to, you know, finish my career, I can be okay with that, but maybe it'll work out great. And, you know, thanks to the support of my husband who, you know, worked in the winters on the ski tour, but then was home uh, in the summer and fall so that he could take our son while I was out training. And, you know, we really worked on this together. Um, That was an incredible piece of the puzzle. But we worked back and we brought my son on the World Cup with us, um, you know, that whole season in 2017 through the World Championships and then the Olympic year. Um, and I just, I did, it when he came into my life, it was an instant change in perspective. I realized that even though I, you know, was an athlete and focused, you know, I would do whatever I needed to do for him. And when I went out training, I made the most of my time because I was excited to get back to my son. And I also knew that, Going out and giving my best was important because that was the example I wanted to set for him. But win or lose, I would come home to a little boy that was happy to see me. And I think that really put an important perspective in my life so that when I went into those Olympics, it wasn't all about the medal. It was all about, you know, really soaking in the experience, leaving it out all out there so that there'd be no regrets, setting the example I wanted to. And no matter what, I would have this amazing family that, that I'd have through the rest of my life and my only um, regret is that we couldn't, uh, we couldn't find a way to have my son at the Olympics, it was just going to be so incredibly expensive and logistically challenging. So my son spent three weeks with my in-laws back in Canada while my husband and I were at the Olympics. Um, Breck had a great time, he really enjoys being with his grandparents, so I think it was probably the best situation for everyone, but I had to spend three weeks away from him while I was at the Olympics, and that was really tough. Uh, Is that still the
0: longest you've ever spent away from him?
1: Yep, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So there's been some training camps, but that was a long period.
0: You know, and I love how you said the minute you had him, it was an instant change in perspective and uh and and it makes a lot of the little stuff you're like why did i worry about that i don't have time for that <laughs> you know like totally like certain things get, are important and certain things are not
1: yeah just it it clears up your focus it you you're you're much better with time management and I have to say like uh, I had my son with me at the world championships the year before the Olympics and leading into the sprint I was doing dish- I was washing out bottles, I was changing diapers and it turned out to be a great way to manage pre-race nerves because I was focused on him and then it, all of a sudden it was like all right now it's time to go to the race now I'll go do my thing You're um, right. instead of sitting around all day going oh this is a race I'm so nervous so um that's a really it was like a nice good distraction <laughs>
0: Well, you made a comment here that you could have this beautiful family, which, by the way, absolutely gorgeous. And every time I see the word Breck, I feel like you're in Colorado. That's why I think I emailed you. I'm like, are you still in Colorado? (laughs) I was never in Colorado. Um, But you said, you know, I'll have this amazing family for the rest of my life. So, boom. Suddenly, not too long ago, maybe just over six months or nine months ago, you get hit with some news that basically alluded to the fact that, you know, we are mortal. Um, I think maybe we should talk a little bit here about what you're going through now about your journey with breast cancer. And like, by the way, how did you get breast cancer? 37 years old, I think, right, at the time and healthy as shit an Olympic gold medalist. (laughs) Like, you are not the prime candidate you would think would get a disease like this. So let's talk about what happened. How, how did you find out?
1: Well, just, yeah, I mean, it's, the crazy, the unbelievable story just continues because I, I get the Olympic gold medal. Um, I finish off the season. I have my retirement parties, you know, it's already going to be kind of a, a big deal to be transitioning away from my career. And we decided also to move to Canada because uh, my husband had been so, so supportive of my career. We were ready to be supportive of his. So we committed to moving down to British Columbia. So we literally had like the U-Haul packed up and we, we headed down and Show up in Canada. We'd been here about two, two, three weeks, and it was Mother's Day. And it was just my husband and my son and I, and we'd had a wonderful day. It was beautiful weather. We went for a hike. We were just hanging out. And it was that evening I was getting ready for bed, and I just kind of happened to brush past my right breast and realize something felt kind of hard. And at first, I thought it was just my rib bone. I thought, oh man, you know, I haven't been training for the last month. Maybe I'm getting skinny. And And then I felt it, and it actually felt like kind of like a pebble or a marble in there. And so I. Credit growing up around some of those women 's um, events to know that like if something doesn 't feel right, go get it checked out right away and It actually bugged me that it was Sunday night, and i couldn 't do anything about it until the next day because I just had an uneasy feeling about it, so being new to Canada the next day, I walk into the hospital the mammogram department, they kindly uh, advised me that I need to get a referral, so that meant I had to go to a walk in clinic, wait, see a doctor there. Um, the doctor I saw did, could definitely feel something, but thought, oh, you're young, you're healthy, you know, it's probably nothing, you know, but you should get the mammogram and ultrasound just to double check. And then that took two weeks to schedule. So then for two weeks, I'm like, okay, I'm you know, I'm feeling amazing. Just going, okay, this is probably nothing. Uh, I'm just going to, you know, go on with my life, be totally cool. Um, I go in for the mammogram and ultrasound, and the ultrasound tech kind of leaves the room like, uh, I'm just going to go show these to the doctor. And uh, that was not a good sign. And then they did a biopsy. Uh, and that was going to take a couple days to get the results. So I headed off to Sweden to a friend's wedding. And I uh, was on the way to the wedding when I got the call um, that the biopsy had determined that it was stage 2 breast cancer. And I just, I I was in disbelief. I just went, how, I feel so healthy, so amazing. How can this be possible? It just, um. But I knew, I knew there was, you know, it wasn't a mistake. Um, so as soon as I got back to BC, I went in and I started meeting with the doctors and learning as much as I could. And I think for the first couple of days, I was being so proactive and just, you know, like, okay, what's my plan, how I'm going to do this, um, that I maybe didn't let the emotion sink in right away. Um, but then when I got back and I saw my son, uh, that did make it. little more difficult because I realized that this challenge was not just you know something I could outwork this was something that that was going to make me question my mortality and and was going to have a lot of unknowns and a lot of things I couldn't control and my you know son you know is the most important thing ever to me and I want to be around as long as I can so uh, I just got to work right away on the treatment and the added challenge was that we were so new to Canada that I didn't qualify for the healthcare here yet, so in order to get the treatment here in Canada, I was going to have to pay for it all out of pocket, and that was just not going to be financially possible. So then, it, then I was going <clears> to <throat> my U.S. Olympic Committee healthcare was due to expire within a couple of months, and uh, so I let the. Olympic committee know what was going on and thankfully they they came to my support right away and said you know what this is you know we've got your back you can stay on the insurance you know while you get through this so then then I started making plans to do my treatment somewhere in the U.S. and uh, Alaska made the most sense because that's where my biggest support network is and you know they've got a lot of great doctors up there so started making that plan but it just it was so hard to wrap my head around when I was feeling so good You know, that I'd just come off of winning an Olympic gold medal, that I had done all the things that they say to do to prevent this kind of stuff. I just, and I, I was frustrated. I was angry and I was really bummed because we were really excited to expand our family. You know, our, as soon as the Olympics were over, we wanted to start trying for kid number two. And now this was totally putting into question whether or not that would ever be possible. And so it's been a lot to process.
0: Um, well, first of all, like, thank you for sharing your whole journey. I think, you know, a lot of women feel like you do. There's disbelief, and then, then they have to face it, right? And you fight, and you're you're fighting it. You know, you're a fighter, and you're going to get it done because, a, you 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 guys. Diagnosed it early. So by the way, I'm sure that I'm not the only one when you said I was I like felt my right breast And then immediately my hand went to my right breast and I was like, "Is anything (laughs) there and I'm sure other people listening did too Um, it's it is it's just fucking scary, you know (laughs) that we Can be the best that we can be and health and fitness can be the core of who we are and we can still get hit and all of the things you're talking about are just so human. And, um, and I love the fact that you first approached it like your 10 year plan. <laughs> you're like, all right, we well, gotta do this, gotta do that. But there's also, it's the practical side. Like you had to be your own advocate and figure out your freaking health insurance when you should just be able to go in and take care of this thing. And that sucks too. So I, it's just, it's a hard process. But once you got going, I mean, man, you approach this thing with all the things you say, like patience, that's important, but also curiosity, and you trained through it. And has that been a big part of your like, ability to get through the treatments?
1: I mean, it's it's amazing how many similarities there are um, from being an athlete to, you know, going through a thing like cancer. And um, I knew um, from, from going through a blood clot 10 years ago and some other things how important it is for me to stay active. You know, I know that's how my body actually recovers better is to stay active. And I also know that's how I stay mentally sane. So I made a commitment from the get-go that I was going to stay active through my treatment. And ironically, I got involved with an organization in Norway about five years ago called Active Against Cancer. It was uh, founded by Greta Waits, the nine-time mm-hmm. winner of yep. the New York Marathon, who also battled cancer and found that she, you know, she kept running through her treatment. And so I kind of, you know, I, I'd worked a bit with them. I was aware of the research that was showing how important exercise was for treatment. And then I was realizing in those initial doctor's appointments, I mean, how little information and in, you know, how they don't really talk about being active, they talk about all the things you should be prepared for, you know, the rest and, you know, how awful you're going to feel. And so I knew I I was going to need physical activity to counteract that. And I also wanted to be a positive role model and show, you know, being by approaching this with curiosity and saying, I want to stay active through this. um, I hoped that by sharing that with people, I would I could help others have a little more confidence and inspiration to be active through their treatment. Um, and, and by giving myself something to to purpose to what I was going through, not only was this me getting through it, but you know, by my me going through it in a certain way, then I could maybe be an inspiration to others that gave me more strength to get through it myself.
0: Um, I can tell you right now you are an inspiration to others and, uh, We appreciate that you're so open about your journey. Um, I want to tell you something cool. I have a friend named Colleen Cannon. She's like a legend in the sport of triathlon. She's been on my podcast. She she has a company called Women's Quest. They do retreats all over the world. And I went up and, and hung out with her. She had a learn to ski day at Snow Mountain Ranch outside of Winter Park a few weeks ago. And when I got there, I was late. (laughs) Everybody had these amazing pink buffs that they had specially made for the event. And they made them in honor of you. There were 100 women. And it was the day after your last radiation. And they talked about you. And they were sending all the good, positive, healing vibes your way. And I tell you this because you don't know how far-reaching your story is and your journey is. And I just want you to take that to heart and know that I know there's more steps for you along the way but there are so many people who have your back, not just us the USOC and you know your family and whatever but tons of people you don't know because because they they see what you bring to this world.
1: Well that's been the most eye-opening part of this whole experience. Um, I think when we won the gold medal I went up a couple thousand followers on my Instagram account. And then when I announced my breast cancer diagnosis, I've gone up over 15,000. Um, <laughs> within within seconds of announcing my diagnosis on my social media, ah. I started getting inundated with yeah. messages of support from mm-hmm. all over the world and everywhere. I mean, I know I was celebrated and supported as an athlete, but the way people have come to support me going through this has just blown me away. And I just... I'm so grateful for it, and I realize that not everybody going through difficult things and, and people that are going through far difficult, more difficult things than I don't have thousands of people telling them that they're strong, that they're going to get through this, that they're there to help. And so that's given me even more motivation to turn around, share my story, and find ways to inspire others so that they can get even a piece of the feeling I have from all the support.
0: Well... I, you know, I I want to just say personally, I very much appreciate you. And, uh, and I know you're not through this journey all the way. What's the next stage of, you know, your recovery, and your treatment?
1: Uh, my hair is growing back and my energy is feeling better and better, which is awesome. I'm so excited about that. Um, I am on a daily hormone, anti-hormone treatment now for the next five years that basically puts me into menopause. So I get crazy hot flashes at night, but getting used to that and uh, figuring out how to layer right. Um, <laughs> that's true. So I've got that. I've got that, but that's just, you know, that's like a, a shot once a month and a and a pill I take every day. So that's not, you know, that can make that a pretty normal part of life. I have one of the targeted drugs that I still go in every three weeks to get an infusion through my port. Um, but I only have to do that for another um, five months and then I'll be done with that one. And then I'm hopeful that in a couple of years, um, I could maybe take a break from the anti-hormone stuff um, to try and have another kid. Um, that's kind of the thing I'm most anxious about this at this point. Otherwise, it's you know riding out uh, this treatment for the next five years and and really just hoping for the best because you know I'm, at this point I'm considered cancer-free. I had about a good as good a response to the chemo as could be expected. The surgery went great. You know the margins came out clean on the pathology report. But cancer is a sneaky thing, and uh, you know, there's no guarantee it won't come back. There's no guarantee it couldn't come back in a more serious form. So I just—that's a lot of stuff. I, you know, what ifs and stuff I can't control. So I'm choosing to focus on the fact that I've made it through the toughest part, and I'm back to doing all the things I love to do. And I'm—I've never felt so bad that I can't still be mom. Uh, And Breck has been the greatest distraction ever for me and and i'm using things like the american berkey to get myself back on track
0: i was gonna say you got to get out there and train we've been on for a while i really appreciate your time so I am gonna. I'm, I think we should wrap it up and let you get back out there on some skis so you can have fun at the Berkey, and and, <laughs> and uh, I will definitely come and try to find you and give you a quick wave. Um, that race is huge, I know, but uh, I'm really anxious to get out there and experience something totally out of my comfort zone and watch people like you who can just do this in your sleep. And I know it's a little different for you. But still, it's going to be amazing. So uh, I want to ask you the final question I ask everyone who comes on my show, which is, if you can leave our listeners with one final piece of advice, one little nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be?
1: Go out and tackle things one step at a time. You'd be amazed what all those steps lead up to. <laughs>
0: Awesome advice. I love it. I will keep that in mind <laughs> at the birthday
1: <Berkey> next weekend. <laughs> yeah, every every kilometer, every chapter, you can do it. <laughs> oh, you are
0: so great. Thanks so much for all your time. We are all pulling for you.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. And um, it's it's been a fun chat.
0: All right, all right, I'm back. Um, are you just flying right now? I mean, Keegan is such a very special person. Since this interview, ESPNW wrote an article about Keegan and described what they call the Keegan effect. And here's how the author, Bonnie Ford, describes it. A powerful vortex evident long before her diagnosis. It pulls people toward her and spins them back out doing things they might otherwise resist. They hear her in their heads. Come on, it'll be fun. We'll be better. I love that. I think Keegan is just one of those people who on the outside is like the girl next door. So she's very real and approachable, but on the inside, she's like a superhero able to push herself mentally and physically further than most people can ever imagine. But the effect is real and her positivity is contagious. Let's go back to the Berkey for a minute. It's funny, um, we texted before and after the start I told her there was a bet to see who would win, me in the 29K or Keegan in the 50K. Because, you know, I'm still competitive. <laughs> at, at two hours and 48 minutes, she texted me this sentence. That was hard. I wrote back, I can't wait to hear about it, but the most awesome thing is that I beat you. <laughs> of course, she averaged 3 minutes and 22 seconds per kilometer for 50k and I averaged 5 minutes and 13 seconds per kilometer for 29k but a bet's a bet so the Keegan effect has begun I hope you love this episode as much as I did please follow Keegan on Instagram at Keeganimal and check out her site at KeeganRandall.com she updates a lot, her blog, etc. Um, In addition to all of her personal exploits, she's also giving back in a huge way to girls in sport with her nonprofit organization, Fast and Female. Even through her treatments, she has still been working to help other people find amazing strength and confidence through sport. So before we go, I also want to remind you that I launched a Patreon account for you to support my podcast if you feel that it is bringing joy and inspiration to your life. You can support at any level starting at $1 per month. When we hit 500 bucks, I'm going to interview one of you. <laughs> um, and all money goes towards growing and producing the podcast. Just go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash Nicole DeBoome. All right then, that's it for today. You know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout and I'll see you next week.